Welcome to Coastal Conversations, a monthly program that deals with major issues confronting the nation's coastal areas, marine and Great Lakes. This program is made possible through the generosity of the Roddenberry Foundation. I'm Jerry Schubel with the Aquarium of the Pacific, and I'm your host. Today we're going to explore the topic of El Nino. What is it? What causes it? Is one in the future for this year? I'm joined today by two experts on El Nino, Dr. William Patzert of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory and Mark Jackson, meteorologist in charge at NOAA's National Weather Service in Oxnard, California. So let's start with a definition. Bill, we'll start with you. What is an El Nino? Well, the, an El Nino is, uh, you know, it has much often hyped, but in, in a simple way, it's just a large scale redistribution of heat in the tropical Pacific, a very, very warm pool of water in the western Pacific, tends to move eastward, and uh, that has a profound effect on weather systems all over the planet. And so depending on whether you're managing a fishery or you're growing cocoa in Africa, it means many things to many people. But the simple description is it's a redistribution of heat which changes weather systems. That means rainfall and temperature patterns all over the planet. Mark, you want to add anything to that? Well, no, it's actually El Nino is a very important part of, of global hydrologic cycle and part of the continuing dancing act of, of balancing the uneven heating across the globe and how the ocean and the atmosphere all interact together. And Bill, what causes, what are the driving forces behind the El Nino? Well, on the largest scale is that, of course, is that the tropics gain more heat over the year than the polar regions. And so the atmosphere and the ocean are always moving heat out of the tropics into the cooler regions, into the north and the southern polar regions, right? But even within the tropics itself, there is this redistribution of heat. And so the global balance of heat, after all, we are a solar heated planet, all right, is what I call a near perfect balance, but not a perfect balance. And so we have these year to year or decade to decade changes in the heat distribution, which we call climate variability. And, and Mark, add a little in about uh, what the effects are of the, the trade wind. Well, the trade winds re can help redistribute, really kind of repile the water in different parts of the Pacific Ocean. You have warm pools of water, you have cold pools of water, and as those trade winds pick up, say you might get trade winds that go uh, from east to west, so from the Americas over to Asia, that kind of helps to pile that water up and that warm water up, and it kind of shuts the storms off, and that's more, that's more normal, whereas opposed to when those trade winds weaken, that warm water kind of sloshes back away away from the Asian, Indonesia, and over towards the uh, Americas, and that's when you get these increases in, in activity and storms that come across the south part of the United States. Do, do we have a slide that could illustrate that to show the warm, the warm water? Yes, we do. In, in this slide, we have a, um, um, what you have on the top. These are neutral conditions. Those arrows are meant to represent the circulation that occurs where those arrows go from right to left. We have the Americas on the right side of that picture and, and the Western Pacific on the left side. So normally those winds push that warm water. The reds are those warmer waters 
that then happened that could then uh, form quite a few, uh, quite a bit of precipitation in the Western Pacific. So that's the normal circulation. But then what happens is those trade winds break down a little bit, they calm down, and that water, uh, you can imagine, and there actually is an elevation to that warmer water, sloshes back um, to the right over to the uh, Americas. Okay, Bill, you want to add anything to that? Yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a very large... That, let's keep that slide It's there. a very large system. You know, the Pacific uh, covers 30% of the planet. It's the biggest thing on the planet. And as the trade winds blow from the Americas towards Asia, they pile up water almost 50 centimeters, a half a meter, in the Western Pacific. And that is the warmest pool of water, surface water, on the planet. And it really drives many of the major meteorological systems. For instance, the great monsoons over Asia, which switch from winter to summer. Well, two-thirds of the world's population lives under that monsoon, which is driven by that great warm pool. And so, as Mark mentioned, when that warm water moves back towards the Americas, it has a tremendous impact on rainfall patterns, for instance, over Asia and certainly over the Americas. And so uh, vast numbers of the world's population, really, in many ways, everybody on the planet feels those great relaxations in the trade winds. And uh, it has fantastic economic and social impact. So when you get a strong El Nino then, the let's keep that figure up there, please. I want you, Mark, to talk about those green spaces, and uh, one of them is right over us here. Right. The green areas uh, represent when uh, areas that receive above normal precipitation, so wet areas, and the graphic labels which time of the year that those wet periods occur. Now, for us in the United States, especially through Southern California, even all the way across into the southeastern part of the United States, Typically with a strong El Nino, uh, when you have a very good connection with El Nino and weather, we get above normal precipitation from January to April. But at the same time, if you remember back to when we described how the trade winds weaken and, and the area of precipitation that's typically over in the western Pacific, that slackens. And so you actually get uh, droughts and drier than normal conditions over through Indonesia and down through in Australia. But as you can see with this graphic, it stretches all the way across. Dry periods within uh, South Africa, uh, dry within uh, northern uh, South, uh, South America. So it's a global phenomenon. And Bill, I've heard you say that for some areas it's a blessing and for other areas it's a curse. Well, you know, uh, going back to the figure again, in the American West, we're really pretty arid for most years. The American West and really the southern tier of the United States is dry. And so uh, we really welcome these El Ninos. I always say here in Southern California, hug your El Nino, because it replenishes our water supply. We're in a punishing drought right now here in the American West. Uh, the water deficit is very low. A big El Nino would really be welcome. Uh, uh, on the other hand, uh, where we might get a good drenching during an El Nino, the Philippines, Indonesia, Northern Australia, they suffer from punishing droughts during an El Nino. The great fisheries off the coast of Peru and Ecuador, it's a great anchovy fishery, the largest in the world, actually. 
uh, warm water will often blanket that fishery and it'll collapse much of the economy of Peru. In Africa, you see there that you get droughts in the, just south of the Sahara, what we call the Sahil. And uh, big uh, crops there like the cocoa crop will fail. And uh, over India, which is the second most populous nation, it's 1.5 billion people, will also have a failure often of the monsoons. And so historically, these great El Ninos have been coupled to punishing droughts with great famines. And so El Nino, you can see some people welcome El Nino and some people dread El Nino because it really redistributes all the pieces on the weather board around the planet. And how, how Mark, how frequently does this happen, this rearrangement of the pieces well, around the planet? Well, we, we typically see an El Nino of some form every, every seven to ten years or so. It's, there's this constant fluctuation of warm water, cold water. We only really see a very strong El Nino every 10 to 20 years. And uh, when we see the correlations like what we saw with this, with this graphic, those are especially prominent when we have these strong El Ninos and there's a very strong signal. We've, we're all hoping for a strong El Nino this year. We're not going to get one. But before we get to that, Bill, where does the name El Nino come from? Well, uh, it goes back really to Peruvian fishermen, as we mentioned earlier, going back to the 16th and 17th century. The appearance of warm water off the coast of Peru and Ecuador would often happen in mid to late December. And so they equated it with the coming of the Christ child. In other words, El Nino means the Christ child. And, and so that, that name has stuck. Of course, modern scientists now know that these really large El Ninos, like Mark mentioned, are not just a local phenomena off Peru, but really encompass the entire planet. And the entire trade wind system and the circulation of the very large Pacific is involved in this. But its original origin is local. So we, we get an El Nino every six or seven or eight, eight years. We get a stronger one much less often. Is there a flip side to an El Nino? In fact, there is, and this is part of this constant balancing act. When Think of it as a pendulum. When, when the warm water sloshes over it and then sloshes back again. So then you have a situation where you have colder water than normal over the Central Pacific and even eastward into the Americas. And what happens with that colder water now is that that tends to, to rearrange the, the hemispheric pattern to where now, as opposed to a very strong, uh, say, Pineapple Express, if we think about the southern part of the United States, it brings abundant amounts of moisture from the tropics through, through our area. Now you're talking about how the, the areas of wet patterns now shift to different parts of the globe and dry patterns shift to other parts of the globe and, and that's typically what happens sometimes uh, sometimes it may decide to do its own thing but but history tells us that when we have these cold waters which is called the la nina which was a um, little girl in spanish as opposed to el nino that typically for areas of southern california and even across the southern tier united states it's drier than normal so you, I've heard you say we have El Nino, La Nina, and La Nada. What is El La well, Nada well, and where are we <laughs> right now? Well, as Mark mentioned, uh, La Nina, the trade winds come back with a vengeance and start pushing all that warm water back into the Western Pacific. 
And uh, the interesting thing about La Nina, as Mark mentioned, the impacts literally flip. And so here in the American West, La Nina means drought, where in Southeast Asia, it's often great flooding, more rainfall than they ever wished for. And so uh, it's, a, it, it's an interesting thing, El Nino and La Nina, because they literally have, not only look different, they have opposite impacts. But often, neither one of those are uh, resident or appear in the Pacific. And so uh, many years ago, uh, I invented the term called La Nada. And all for right? people who don't speak Spanish, <laughs> what does La Nada mean? La Nada means there's nothing, right. all right? The nothing, all right, right? The nothing, right. And, and so, and these are uh, conditions where uh, a strong El Nino and a strong La Nina, you know, forecasters love it because it has very predictable right. impacts. But during a La Nada, you know, that's where guys like Mark, that's why he makes the big bucks, all right? <laughs> because it's really difficult to forecast impacts. Right and weather systems during a Lanata. But uh, remember, most of the time, it's Lanata. Right. So we, we're three years into one of the most severe droughts that we've experienced uh, in, in the period of record here in Southern California. Over the last several years, have we been in, in a La Nina or a Lanata? Well, I, myself, I think this drought has actually been building since 2002. So we're in the 12th year of a drought here in California. It, droughts build very slowly, all right? And uh, during most of this period, it has been uh, a La Nada. We've had a few false starts at an El Nino, all right? And uh, of course, we've had more frequent La Ninas during this long drought. So uh, we've been in a prolonged period here of La Nada and La Nina. And uh, El Nino, really took a vacation here for the last 12 years, all right? Right. It, so, you, you know, in some ways, one might, if you're, if you're uh, cynical, say that uh, one of our management strategies for water in, in this region is to just pray for uh, an El Nino every few years, and it'll keep the reservoirs and the groundwater. What, what, what's wrong with, with that strategy? Well, what's wrong with that strategy is, for, for one thing, is that we need to establish a, a new normal for water usage because even when we do have our wet years, which they will come eventually, we will eventually someday have a strong El Nino and have a lot of precipitation in Southern California. But we have to practice these water conservation behaviors at all times so we can build up that surplus even when we do have the wet years. And we will have wet years, we'll continue to have dry years, we'll have droughts, we'll have wet periods that will continue to cycle back and forth. And so here we are in, in December of 2014. Uh, are we going to get an El Nino in 2014-15? Uh, if we do, is it going to? Is there any chance it could be a strong one? You guys uh, have the prediction center within NOAA. I want you to tell us what you think, and then Bill will give us the other perspective. Well, we started out uh, very hopeful back in April and uh, in May when we had very warm uh, sea surface temperatures in the Pacific that uh, we're even showing some signs that we might have a very strong El Nino this year. Right. Well, those backed off. And uh, now they're starting to come back a little bit, and our, our water temperatures within the Pacific are now starting to warm up again. The problem is it's probably too late. And in order to actually classify an El Nino, you have to have water temperatures 
above a certain normal uh, for a certain period of time and then also have that atmospheric response. We're already in, in December right now and the Climate Prediction Center has uh, officially issued a 65% chance of an El Nino this year. Well, time is running out and, and most likely what will happen is, is that we will see sort of the, the teasing part of an El Nino but then we'll start getting into the summer months and our best hope might be for then an El Nino the following winter. So Bill, would you add to that? We've had some rain in the last uh, few days. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, this is go back here is, is that, you know, when we look back in the historical record tree rains, El Ninos have been around for thousands of years. El Nino is not a new thing, right? right? And so have droughts. And droughts, the history of the American West, West is really written in droughts. Right. An actual fact here in California, six out of 10 years are below normal rainfall. And so drought is the normal. Now, you know, people talk about the new normal, the old normal. You know, I, I like to quote Emmy Lou Harris as uh, uh, normal is a cycle on a washing machine, all right? <laughs> Doesn't really have much to do with weather, right? If you work with weather. Uh, so uh, you know, we often have weak El Ninos, moderate El Nino. And when we have that, those are not good indicators, for instance, of rainfall in the American West or drought in Australia. It's only the very large events, all right? And so uh, people get all pumped up. There's something deep in their cerebral cortex when you say El Nino, because everybody thinks back to 1997, right. 1998. And that was like a once in a 50 year event, all right? But in fact, all right, most of these El Ninos tend to disappoint. Right. And this year is a good example. Like Mark said, even I got excited in February or March, all right? And I am the great skeptic when it comes to El Ninos because I know that if I'm lucky, I will see two or three in my lifetime, all right? How many have you seen so far? Well, I, you know, I've seen, I've, I've seen three big ones, and so I guess that means I'm near being finished. <laughs> you reached but, your quota. Okay, but at this particular time, it's usually a big El Nino takes almost eight to nine months to develop, yeah. all right? So it's way too late, right. All, right? all right? But we can always wait for next year. You can definitely take El Nino off your calendar for 2014. Right. But uh, on the other hand, if these relaxations in the trade winds did finally kick in here in early 2015, all right? What we're talking about is an El Nino, not for this winter, but for next winter, all right? So I'm definitely not taking that off the table. Hope springs eternal. Yes. Well, well, I've forgotten who said it, but it, it, the, if you're going to make predictions, make lots of them. And, uh, <laughs> it seems to me that's sort of where we are. Before we come back to the new normal, our ability, though. Well, hold on. What is the new normal? Wait, wait, wait. We're going to come back to that, okay. all right? <laughs> we, well, our ability, though, to measure the conditions that can lead to an El Nino have improved significantly over the last decade or so. And it's a combination by, by both of the agencies that you guys work for, NOAA and NASA. T just say a little bit about what we've done to greatly improve our ability to forecast. Well, we, um, uh, with NOAA and NASA, uh, from the oceans to, the, to space, really, when you think about trying to, first of all, we have to be able to detect what is going on. 
before we even can even imagine predicting what might happen. So one of the things you have to do is understand what's going on in the ocean. And we have the ability through a, a very sophisticated network of buoys within the Pacific Ocean across the, actually right across the equator. It's it, as they go around through the equator, a band that's measuring water temperature, not only at the surface, but also much below the surface. And how because frequently? Well, it'd be, those temperatures are actually taken quite frequently. Um, the, and then on the NASA side, we have satellites which help us actually detect um, that level of that ocean. You remember when Bill said earlier that, it t that the ocean can actually pile up to, right. uh, you know, centimeters high and a meter high out in the Pacific? Well, our satellites, the NASA satellites, are able to detect that change in that elevation right. of that ocean. So why with all of this technology is it so hard to get it right? Well, you know, the, the limiting factor in science uh, in uh, the last few decades has been a revolution in technology. Great satellites, as Mark mentioned, being flown by NASA and NOAA, all right? A system of buoys, all right? But the limitation in all human affairs is between the years, okay? And so you have all this data, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have a fail-safe prediction system, all right? What really comes before prediction is understanding. And, of course, we have made tremendous leaps in understanding of El Nino, La Nina, and La Nada. But we're not quite there yet, all right? And so uh, often we stumble on these forecasts and predictions, all right? But on the other hand, you know, with this great observing system, great advances in technology, you can see these El Ninos coming many, many months in advance. Right. And not only that, you have your finger on the pulse, and you can see how strong they are, how big the heartbeat is. And so, uh, you know, the American taxpayer is getting a great punch for its buck through NASA and NOAA, all right? And uh, we're not embarrassed sometimes, all right, to stub our toes on a prediction, either a weather prediction or a climate prediction like El Nino, all right? No, and I think it's quite remarkable, the advances yeah, that have been made. And it, uh, it, it really helps people, uh, countries around the world, prepare for these situations and saves lives, saves right. money, and, and so on. But Jerry, if I could comment, too, that like what Bill said, it's, it's, it's one thing to detect it. And we do a pretty good job of detecting what's going on. But the huge challenge continues to be try to, try to predict and as we said earlier, it's only when we have those strong signals, when we have a strong El Nino or strong La Nina. But in, in the most recent history, you, may, you remember Bill mentioned how we've been so dry for so long now. The, the only time in Southern California that we had normal precipitation, okay, was with a strong La Nina. Yep. Okay, now that is something that, that's why we continue to to scratch our heads and go, now what is happening here? This wasn't supposed to happen. We were supposed to be dry in Southern California. But the, and, and that got us in, we had a week of precipitation in, in the December time frame that got us up to normal. Take away that one week and it's a normal precipitation here. So that's why it's a continuing challenge. And, and even as we talk now with as conditions are teetering on teasing us with a weak El Nino, 
we've actually had some pretty good rain in Southern California over this. We're going to end up in Southern California with normal precipitation, believe it or not. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. But it still doesn't solve the, doesn't solve the drought problem. We're going to come back to that in a right. minute. But how, how many years have we had this improved ability to measure with the smart buoys and the, the, the overflights by NASA? How, many, how far back does this go? I'm trying to think back how far the, the, the they're called tau buoys, the tropical right. atmospheric observing uh, buoys, and I, those, those have been there for at least a decade or so, maybe more. 30 years, essentially. Uh, NASA's been flying for 20 years now. The great altimetry satellites measure the ocean height. NOAA's have been flying for over 30 years, the weather satellites. The buoys have been in for 30 years. And so that's really a relatively short time frame all right and so but we've accumulated a fantastic data set but again as i mentioned earlier the limitations like in most human affairs in scientific research is the limitation is not the size of your computer right but the size of this computer yeah all right right and so but we've made great advances but what really we're looking for now is you're always looking for new ideas to test on these great data sets that NASA and NOAA are providing. But as those data sets get longer, then it, it should improve our understanding, our ability to um, make more reliable forecasts. Is that it, 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 it should. You should. would expect it to happen yeah. that way. You know, we really have only studied El Nino. We go back to understanding what the temperatures have been doing back to the mid-50s and and actually classifying them since then, which is a relatively short time period. Yeah. Well, yeah. think about it, though. We've also have a very long period climatic observations with tree rings and everything right. else, and we continue to try to understand. So we do know this, that each year that we go through and each year we collect data, like what we've talked about, uh, we have to hope that we will better understand it. Right. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I just want to say is that... Uh, the supercomputer between my ears, all right, often does a better job than uh, all the other supercomputers and laboratories across the country. All right? I know. Is that because, because your personal supercomputer is so much more powerful? Experience. Or experience. I, well, we under, often underestimate ex experience. Experience, all right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I want us to, uh, before we close, let's talk about the new normal. This is a phrase that's thrown around. Yeah. And we, we know that climate is changing. The ev scientific evidence is unequivocal. And, and in, let's bring this back to Southern California. Are uh, the new normal, what, what are some of the qualities of that? For, for me, you, it would be that we're going to have to learn how to, to live with uh, less water because we're going to, not ha we're going to lose the snowpack in the, Sierra, in the Sierras um, be, with warming of, of climate. Uh, we, we're simply going to have to get used to the fact that we do live in a semi-arid environment. Which well, the, the, the new normal. In the past century, we've added so much greenhouse uh, gases to the atmosphere is that we're now living in a warmer world. The average temperature of the planet is 1.6 degrees Fahrenheit, warmer than it was a century and a half ago. And you can see the great ice sheets and the glaciers are melting. Right. Sea level is rising. And so for the coastal community, the unequivocal proof is, of course, is that your beaches are getting smaller. Right. Right? 
Now, what impact will this change in the climate have, for instance, on extreme weather? On the one hand, will it make weather forecasting more difficult? Will that change? And on these year-to-year -year shifts in climate like El Nino or La Nina, will it make for more frequent El Ninos or more frequent La Ninas? So just at the point where we're starting to understand some of these phenomena, they've changed the ground rules on right. us right. because we are living in a changing climate, all right? And it will impact everything. Now, part of the picture is also not only are we living in a warmer world, we're living in a more crowded world. There's 7.2 billion of us on the planet, all right, fighting for limited resources. And one of the most limited resources, for instance, here in the American Southwest, is it's water. water right. All right. And so the climate is changing. There's 7.2 billion of on us. On our way to 10 billion by the end of this century. On the way to 10 billion. In the last 60 years, the California, the population of California has quadrupled. It's gone from 10 million to 40 million. And the one thing I know for sure, I, a lot of things that I don't know for sure, but we're not making any more water. Right. The amount of water is the same, all right? And so the new normal is a changing climate, but it's also a changing population and a tremendous advances in technology, right. all right? And so all these put tremendous demands on water, on power, all right? And so we will adjust to a new normal. And, and with the population going, increasing by 40 or 50 percent by the end of this century, you have to grow enough food to feed those people. And right now, agriculture takes about half of the ice-free surface of the, the dry the earth uh, to grow the crops, and it takes over 70 percent of all of the water. So we're going to have to look at things in a very different way and embrace technologies and ideas that uh, some of us haven't liked maybe in the past. Right. You make a, a really good point, Jerry, because, uh, you know, we have to think about, uh, you know, do we, uh, on the extreme, uh, do we eat less beef and more vegetables? Because beef is a tremendous yep. drain on water resources. Right? Do we change from... Uh, an oil and gas and coal economy to a renewable energy. That would be the new normal, all right? And it, those transitions take time, too. They and do we make time. a conscious effort to limit population growth? Right. And of course, that's my favorite thing, all right? And just to put a plug in here, the fundamental thing we can do to slow down population growth and demand on limited resources is improve educational and economic opportunities for women. Particularly, yes, exactly. Right? Yes. And so that would be a new normal. That would be a that new would normal. be a new right. normal that I would endorse. Yes. <laughs> and I th so so I so would I. Well, we're we're coming near the end of the time. I I think that I want to point out though, that um, how much the public gets from the investment that they make in NOAA and in in NASA in our understanding, and I think. Probably there's more of an appreciation of what NASA does because of what in space, deep space exploration, than all of the things that NOAA, NOAA does. And now much of NASA also benefits uh, looking back at, at Earth and what we learn about, about the oceans. But I think this nation owes a great debt to both of your, your organizations, and uh, we're delighted to be able to partner with you.
I is there anything either of you would like to say before we close up about uh, El Nino, uh, the new normal, a anything that you would like to say? Well, one thing, Jared, I would like to say is that, um, is that through NASA and NOAA, we have, there's a bunch of science geeks in these organiza organizations, and we all have a personal interest in wanting to know more. In NOAA, you have, you have many scientists and public servants that really want to provide the, the public and our nation with um, services of the ocean and the atmosphere for economic uh, benefit, for our own safety, for our lives and livelihoods, in the partnership with NASA, and, and all we do with NASA with, with better understanding from, from, the, from the sun to the sea. But then there's also the important mix of public education. And without organizations like the Aquarium of the Pacific and the other science centers around the world that really help better educate the public in understanding why it's, it's, it's beneficial to, to understand science and why it comes back to benefit, again, their own lives and livelihoods. And, and this program that you're, that you're on, it's part of the Coastal Ecosystem Learning Center Network. So this broadcast goes to 25 institutions, almost all of which are aquariums, 23 in the U.S., one in Canada, one in Mexico, and they get to more than 25 million people every year. And so I, uh, we appreciate your being here. So I want to thank Mark Jackson and Bill Patzert for joining me for this edition of Coastal Conversations. I also want to thank the Roddenberry Foundation for making Coastal Conversations possible. Watch our homepage for the date and topic of the next Coastal Conversation, which will be sometime in January 2015. I'm Jerry Schubel for Coastal Conversations. Thank you for watching. Thank you.